at Galatians chapter 6, Galatians chapter 6 and verse 1. Um, I told you a while back about my great-grandfather. His name was Grandpa Hooker, is what we called him. And uh, he had uh, homing pigeons. And I told you the story how he would send them across Lake Michigan. He lived on the Michigan side of Lake Michigan, Muskegon. And he'd send those birds all the way to Chicago and they'd send messages back and forth. I was shocked at how neat that was. There was an article in the newspaper about that and about him. But I heard someone crossed a pigeon with a woodpecker. And not only does it fly over with a message, it knocks on the door. So <laughs> I thought that's pretty neat. Yeah, amazing. We look at Galatians and uh, I'm going to read one verse from Psalm 19 in a moment, but Galatians, we, we started out talking about doctrine, 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 the salvation by faith plus nothing and minus nothing, and then it became practical. We talked about the works of the flesh. Uh, a Sunday night when I was talking about the works of the flesh, I preached on the tongue and how that is, of course, uncontrollable. It's so hard to control what you say. We talked about envy and so many other things. Then we slide into chapter 6. And remember, there aren't chapter divisions. And we learn how spirit-filled people are to deal with difficult people in difficult situations. And so we're going to look at chapter 6, verse 1 in a moment. But we're going to read from chapter 19, verse 13. These naive Galatians, remember, had, had uh, just listened to the wrong people. And some of the people they listened to were legalists who just wanted to always judge people. And when someone had fallen, the legalists wanted to just condemn them and criticize them and judge them. And so Paul's writing to talk about how spirit-filled people are supposed to deal with people who have fallen. In chapter 19 and verse 13, let's stand and read this. Just a verse uh, about people who have presumptuous sins. It says here, Keep back thy servant also from presumptuous sins. That really means arrogant sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then shall I be upright and I shall be innocent from the great transgression. God bless us as we take a look in your book for a walk in the world that we will be what we ought to be as believers. Uh, to realize our own sin, our sins of our flesh. And then, Lord, to realize as spirit-filled believers, we can do the work of God. But moment by moment, we need to surrender to the Spirit of God and defeat the flesh. Bless us, Lord, and help us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. If you're feeling low and worthless, there seems nothing you can do. Just take courage and remember there is someone needing you. You were created for a purpose, for a part of God's great plan Bear you one another's burdens, so fulfill the law of Christ to man. Someone needs your faith and courage. Someone needs your love and prayer. Someone needs your inspiration, thus to them, to help them their cross to bear. Do not think your work is ended. There is much that you can do. As long as you're on the earth, there is something some, or someone needing you. And boy, I messed that up. But we're here for a purpose. And people need us, and they need spirit-filled believers. So easy to walk in the flesh and to satisfy yourself. In things you say and things you do. And when it comes to confronting people, we have to be in the Spirit. So we look at chapter 6 in verse 1, which says, Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual. 
Restore such a one in a spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. Brethren, he says. We're going to look at the restoration of the fallen in verse 1. And we're talking here about the fallen people. And this a lot of times is people who have fallen, not necessarily uh, in a way we think, but, but sometimes in, in ways we are hard to believe. But brethren, if a man, and we could stop and preach a sermon on the word man. The word man is a word anthropos. We get our word anthropology and it means upright. Did you know we're a higher created being than anything in this universe? We're created higher than the angels, higher than the animal kingdoms. I get kind of frustrated with TV shows and advertisements that make animals as important as people. They don't have a conscience. The other day I was in my front yard and I was with my dog. I love my dog. But he decided to do number two about a foot from me. And people just don't do that unless they don't have anything up here. And I'm like, aren't you ashamed? I'm right here. Now, sometimes a man will go to the bathroom outside. We understand that. We're working. Nobody can see it. We'll go to the bathroom. And we're always embarrassed if somebody sees us, unless it's the guy we're working with, but we're embarrassed. We now have a new security system. And one night I was out with my dog about 9 o'clock at night. And my wife, when I came and said, I saw what you're doing out there. And I was praying. No, I was going to the bathroom. And uh, I was a little embarrassed that she saw me. Of course, when you're married and you've had four kids together, you know, you understand. But still, it was awkward. And she got a kick out of teasing me. But the point of the matter is, you know, we have, we have this, this potential to do things when we think no one's looking and all of a sudden someone's looking. And yet we have a conscience, you see. My dog didn't care about being caught, but I did. Why? Because I have a conscience, an inner man that speaks to my old nature and says, hey, you know, uh, that was embarrassing. But if a man be overtaken, this really just simply means caught. It can be translated overcome, overtaken, but this man's been exposed. He's been caught. He's been caught. Uh, and it says here, if a man's been overtaken by a fault, it says, ye which are spiritual. Now, the legalist would be outraged when they caught anybody doing anything. Remember they caught the woman in the act of adultery? They caught her in the act, and they were really mad. And so they threw her at Jesus' feet and said, Wait, what do we do with her? Aren't we supposed to stone her? And I'm paraphrasing the passage. That's how legalists are. They love catching people. They love hurting people, really, to enhance their own agenda, to build themselves up as being spiritual people. And they weren't spiritual at all. The point is restoration in the spirit of meekness. Ye which are spiritual. That has to do with the Holy Spirit controlling us. Restore such a one. It, brother, if a man be overtaken with a fault, the word fault is translated in Ephesians 2, 1, trespass. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. Here's someone that's caught doing something. They've crossed the boundary. They, they're offside, so to speak. And those that have, have caught them, caught them doing this thing, the spiritual person, not the carnal Christian. If you're carnal, don't even try. Get in the spirit before you try to help someone. Help someone when you're led of the spirit. The spiritual man is the one who confronts them. Not the lost man, obviously, not the carnal man. He had just talked about the fruit of the Spirit in chapter 5. We named the ninefold fruit. Now he says, those of you who are like that, spirit-controlled, 
I love the passage, be not drunk with wine, but be ye controlled with the Spirit. If you're controlled by the Spirit, you're able to help people even when you're rebuking them, causing them to see their own faults. And that's a challenging thing to stay in the Spirit to do that. But Paul says the spiritual man. Why does the Bible compare a spiritual man with a drunk? Because you're controlled by something other than your own self. When you're drunk, you don't have control. When you're spirit-filled, you're not in control. The Spirit's guiding you. Now, what does a drunk man do? A drunk man has all kinds of boldness. A spirit-filled man has all kinds of boldness. The righteous are as bold as a lion, the Bible says. And so when you're of the Spirit, you have the courage to say something to someone, you're just wrong. I love you, but what you've done is wrong. And if we can't admit we're wrong, we've got a real problem. When we say things we shouldn't do and do things we shouldn't do, and we do things in the flesh, we have to realize we've got a problem. There's a thing called narcissism. It's kind of a new word in our society. We've, we've heard it tossed about, the word narcissism and narcissist, quite a bit. When you, when you go, go and watch those shows and the criminals being interviewed, what does the criminal say? I haven't done anything wrong. Well, I did it because this person did it to me. And the narcissist goes on and on and justifies their behavior as though they're somehow in the right. It's amazing how many people have stood before the judge and said not guilty who were guilty. Sometimes they have video on people and they say, you know, here's a video, here are the witnesses. I didn't do anything. The police framed me. This person gave us false statement. I didn't do anything. It's called narcissism. And it's offensive to God because God desires what? Repentance from sinners and confession from believers. When we confess our sin to God, we are agreeing with God that we are wrong. And if you can't agree you're wrong and say, I'm wrong, if you say, I'm wrong, but let me tell you why I'm wrong, you're already going against the Lord God right there. And you're an offense to God. I mean, God doesn't trip up and stumble because of you, but he does not like it when you don't admit you're wrong. I hate it when... You know, growing up, I, I, I found so many things wrong in my life. And I've, I've always learned to apologize. I, I went to my boys and told them when I spanked you in anger, I apologized for whipping you in anger. Because uh, it wasn't always righteous indignation. There's times I grabbed them by the arm and wanted to rip their arm off, you know. Uh, you know, there's times at church when I'm preaching and they're in the youth section and, and they're carrying on and I just kind of, you know, when, when I think no one's looking but everybody knows it's my kids, you know, <laughs> and wait till you get home type of thing. And, you know, it's really hard not to whip them in anger. Now, anger's not always wrong. You're supposed to be angry about sin. But <clears throat> I, I, I've learned to say, I'm wrong, my son, will you forgive me? And if you're married and you don't learn to say you're wrong, you're going to have a rough marriage, aren't you? If you live with a narcissist, they don't admit they're wrong. Well, they can punch somebody in the nose. Well, I can justify it. He looked at me cross-eyed, and I didn't like it. Cross-eyed people look at things differently, by the way. <laughs> I had a friend that was cross-eyed and uh, always looked at things, diff things differently, and, and he had a problem with his pupils. Uh, he was a teacher. And uh, I, I remember in field day, he decided he'd throw the javelin, and nobody thought he'd break any records, but everybody paid attention to where he was throwing. Uh, 
The church loved him because he counted and he always doubled the attendance. So they loved him counting. That's, those are bad jokes. Uh, that's something I used to entertain churches when I wasn't preaching. But anyway, um, you know, we get upset and we look at someone cross-eyed because they point out something in our life and we're wrong and then we get upset at them and we get mad because they're confronting us. So there's two sides of this coin. As believers, when we are confronted about sin, we have to be meek, spirit-filled. As believers, when we confront people about sin, we have to be meek in our confrontation of that person. Both those sides are the same coin, aren't they? Can you be meek when your spouse says to you, dear, you're driving too close. You're angry behind the wheel. You spent too much money. You didn't, you know, you're not, you, you got fired from your job because, you, you know, you just don't work hard. Can you listen to her or do you get mad and justify your behavior? Ladies, when your husband says, honey, you're just spending too much money, how do you take that? How does, he, how does he confront you? Those are all challenges in life we face every day. How many of you have faced those things in life one way or the other? Two people. Well, it's wonderful to know two people have made those mistakes. I have both hands up. We understand that. And so the spirit-filled person has to be walking in the spirit. And look what it says. Brother, of a man be overtaken, you which are spiritual, restore. That's a medical word used in maybe setting a broken leg. Over in the Gospels, it's translated to mend. The disciples were mending their nets, mending their nets. Now, do you think the disciples, when they realized the nets were torn, grabbed them and just tore them way worse and tore them all up uh, before they mended them? That's a dumb question. Of course not, Pastor. Do you know when you rebuke someone in the flesh, that's what you're doing? You're making the problem worse. You're tearing people apart. And then you think you're going to help them along. So it's so important to confront people in the right spirit, in the right attitude. We can all say our parents didn't always do that with us. Maybe you struggle to forgive your parents for confronting you in the flesh. You need to forgive them and move on. Forgiveness is such a big thing. And people don't forgive, never understand the blessings of God in their life because they're harboring things in, your life, in their life. And you know, if you don't forgive others, God doesn't forgive you. And so it's so challenging restoring someone, not tearing the nets more, in the spirit of meekness. We learned about meekness last week, or I think two weeks ago. Meekness is not weakness. It's made up of two words, gentle and strong. You can be strong and be gentle. You can be gentle and be strong. And that's tough for people to understand. We a lot of times look at someone who's strong as someone who's fleshly, and we think, oh, that guy, he's really abrupt and strong. And that's, that, that's wrong because a, a, a meek man will be gentle in his approach. And he'll have the courage to say it. Someone said silence is golden. Sometimes, however, it's just plain yellow. There are parents who will not confront their kids because they're afraid their friendship will not be what it ought to be. Your kids aren't your friends. You need to correct them and tell them when they're wrong. Not scream at them, but you need to let them know and apply the Board of Education to the seat of their britches. That, that's part of rearing children. God loves us and he does what? He chastens us. If we love our kids, what will we do? 
will chasten them. And so restoring, and then he says here, considering thyself. That's an interesting Greek word. The word scopio, we get our word microscope, looks at small things, telescope, which looks, tele means distance, but the word scope. Considering thyself. What does this mean? It means to look at yourself. In James chapter 1, it says we need to continue to look in the glass of the Word of God, in the mirror of the Word of God, and continue to look until you see the real problem. It's just, you know, the Limburger effect. How many times have I used that illustration? A guy gets Limburger cheese in his mustache, and he says, boy, this guy stinks. He moves to the next room. This whole room stinks. He goes outside and says the whole world stinks, and the problem's really right under his nose. When it's everybody else's fault, you need to take a look in the mirror and see where the problem comes from. It comes from your old nature, your old nature. And the mirror is the Word of God. Every time I read the Word of God, even when I'm preparing a message for this church, guess what happens? Guess who I see in my passage? I don't see Jake, although he's probably there. I see me. I don't see David. I see me in the Word of God. As I love that old spiritual. It's me. It's me, O oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer. Not my brother, not my sister, but it's me, O oh Lord. And all of us need to look in the Word to see where the problem lies, and we'll see that it lies with us. I like what F.B. Meyer said. F.B. Meyer, a great scholar, said this. <clears throat> There's three things. When we, when we see a brother or sister sin, there are three things we do not know. First, we don't know how hard he or she tried not to sin. Second, we don't know the power of the forces that assailed him or her. And third, we do not know what we would have done in the same circumstance. If we listen to F.B. Meyer, then we go to confront someone. We have to really evaluate that. So we're confronting them in the right spirit. Because you don't know if you haven't been there. I can't judge the guy under the bridge and say, well, look at him. He's probably on drugs. The other day I was driving, pulling up to a light on the terrace, and here's two guys, homeless, need help. My flesh said, open the window and tell them to get a job. We got an abundance of jobs and not enough workers. That's what my old nature said. I didn't say that. That's my first thought in my mind. Then I thought to myself, shame on me. I don't know what happened to that guy. He may be, you have some mental illness from, from Vietnam. He may be schizophrenic. He may have, he lost everything, his job, his family, his home. And he's, he's maybe on the run. I don't know his circumstances. How dare me judge him? So I had to judge myself the rest of the right way home. And, and, and so we do that so often. And, and F.B. Meyer's point is well taken. So we look at the restoration of the fallen. Now look at the responsibility of the family. In verse 2, remember the context here. What's the context? Spirit-filled people rebuking and helping the fallen in meekness. The fallen may have a spiritual immaturity problem, weakness, difficult circumstances, but there's something wrong. Walver, John Walver, the great scholar, calls this the weight of spiritual failure. Look what it says. Bear you one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Christ reduced 613 Old Testament laws to one. Love your neighbor as yourself. And the word, the, the verb agape is an action word. You can't just love in word, you need to love in deed. 
And here he says, bear ye one another's burdens. The word burdens is an interesting word. You all know it. It's the word boros. We get our word burl from it. When I was in Jordan, they had a burl. They said, do you want to ride it? And I said, no. Well, you're going to walk all the way? I said, yes. And we're supposed to bear, like a burrow is a burdened animal that carries burdens, we're supposed to bear one another's burdens. And oftentimes it's spiritual. Sometimes it's financial. Sometimes it, it may be cutting the grass because they had a knee surgery. But here the context is someone with a spiritual burden. They can't handle the sin load. And that's, that's a challenge to help people with a spiritual problem, but we have to do that. It's part of our calling as believers. Remember the Good Samaritan? I love that story. He physically helped someone who was on the side of the road, beaten up. Actually physically carried him, helped him get into an inn, and, and he said, put everything on my account. What a, what a picture of Jesus. Well, the same principle applies to people with other burdens, maybe spiritual burdens, things they can't handle. I have a friend, he's an alcoholic and uh, struggles with alcohol. He says, if I take one drink, I'm back struggling with alcohol in a huge way. And I can say, preach a message on be not drunk with wine and how dare he be drunk and all that stuff. That annoys do the trick though because we're called to restore that person. That's hard. I know people that have stayed weekends with drug addicts to keep them from putting a needle in their arm. That's bearing a burden. It's tough stuff, tough duty, but it's our calling. And spirit-filled believers, we have the courage to do stuff like that. Just like the drunk man has the courage to do stuff, the drunk will pick a fight with the biggest guy in the bar. Now, we don't want to be drunk with wine. We want to be filled with the spirit and have that same courage and boldness. Sometimes it just means to hold your arms around somebody to stop them from hurting themselves. And this is a challenging passage to us because to stay spirit-filled in these situations is very difficult. And this person has an overload, this, this burden. A.T. Robertson, the great scholar, wrote a book on word pictures in the New Testament. He, he describes this man as a man pushing a cart uphill full of stuff. And you see that, and you go along, and you help him with that overload. That's what it means. Bearing one another's burdens. And so fulfill the law of Christ. In verse 3, it says, for, now this is a word connecting the two verses, for, if a man, it could be the word because, for, if a man uh, think of himself to be something, he deceiveth himself. And we were told in verse 1, you know, to examine ourselves. Here, don't deceive yourself. And 2 Corinthians 10, 2 says, don't compare yourself with people. Comparing yourself with others is just wrong. We can always find someone who's worse than us, a bigger jerk than us, and that's wrong to do that. And we've all done that. I don't want to ask for a show of hands because all the narcissists won't raise their hands. <laughs> How many would say, I have done that? You better all raise your hands. Of course we've done it. We have deceived ourselves into thinking, oh, we're so special. And we're just not. We're just not. And comparing ourselves to others is just so ignorant. Because you don't know their situation, as I read from F.B. Meyer. 
Verse 4, a word that tells us the opposite. But, a word of transition, let every man prove his own work. This word is translated try. It's translated test in 1 Corinthians eleven eighteen. Why do we have to test our own works? Because we're going to all stand before the Lord at the beam of seat. So you better examine. That's how it's translated elsewhere. You better examine your works. What have you poured your energy in? What was your motive in doing that? Examine that. Because we're all going to stand at the beam of seat. But every man prove his own work, and then he shall have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another. Verse 5, another great verse. Another connecting word. For every man shall bear his own burden. Now, let me just say, the word burden here is a completely different word. It's not the word burrow. It means responsibility. It's a word meaning responsibility. We can bear one another's burdens, but we can't bear someone's responsibility. Every man needs to bear his own responsibility. If you have disobedient kids, I can't come and spank your kids. I may want to, but I can't. That's your responsibility, right? If you have to take an exam, let's say you're taking a Bible course over at one of these schools and you say, Pastor, could you go take my test for me? I would say, of course not. That's your responsibility. But if you come and say, Pastor, I'm struggling financially, emotionally, spiritually. Can you help me? I'm obligated to say, of course. It's my duty to help you. And so we, we want to sometimes even push our responsibilities on other people. And every man has to bear his own responsibility. But we're supposed to bear one another's burrows, burdens, weights, overweights. And, and so, you know, we, we realize that it's used in a figurative way here, but it's also used in a, f- a physical way. A burden can be something heavy. It can be spiritual, emotional, physical. It can be a, you know, it can be a, 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 said already, a responsibility. But here in verse 5, the reference is to a normal load of a soldier's backpack. In the book of Acts, it refers to a normal cargo carried by a ship. So when somebody has a responsibility, a normal load that everyone else has, and it's their responsibility, you cannot bear them. They have to bear their own burdens. But when they have an overload, something you can help with, then we help them. When you see a a picture of maybe the results of World War II, and I've seen some of these documentaries where they show a city just demolished and they saw somebody just with a cart or a, a thing and they're just dragging this heavy load. You think, oh man, isn't that sad? And there's no one there to help them because everyone's got this pack that's overloaded and they can't handle it. And you feel kind of bad. And you wish you could jump in there and help them. Well, folks, there's people right now in 2022 with overloads. And there's people in 2022 who have responsibility. Some of you need to bear your own responsibility. And some of you need to help someone else who has an overload. Bear you one another's burdens and so fulfill their all Christ. And then it says, every man shall bear his own burden. So verse 2 is talking about an overload. Verse 5 is talking about a normal load. Verse 2 about a weight. And verse 5 about a responsibility. We have responsibilities. 
And then we look, finally, we look at the, the remuneration of the flock, and we've talked about restoration and responsibility. Now we talk about remuneration. I hesitate to even preach on this because I, I hear preachers preach on it a lot. You know, when they want to raise, they, this will happen to fall on this text. And, and the text here says to us to financially and physically take care of the person who teaches us the scriptures. You do well, don't give me anything, okay? But it's in our text. We're working through the book of Galatians, and this is a verse I have to deal with. It says here, let every man that is taught in the word communicate. That means take care of, to give unto him that teacheth in all good things. The word's translated distribute, partake. And so we have to take care of people. It might surprise you. This, this verse in 1 Timothy chapter um, uh, 5, verse 18 says, don't muzzle the ox that treads the corn. In other words, when you're in a field and you've got oxen and you're plowing the field and then you pause and that ox decides to graze or eat some of the stalks or something, you don't have a muzzle on him. You let him enjoy the fruit of his labor. That's what Timothy says. It might shock you to know that I could go in the fridge and get some food out of there and eat it or carry it home and eat it. If I was out of toilet paper because... Where's Larry? I was going to pick on it. Well, I can pick on Gary. Is Gary in here? Well, there's no, neither of them are here, but Joe, I'll pick on you. Joe bought 2,000 rolls of toilet paper during the crisis, the COVID. And if I'm out of toilet paper, I can't go to the store. Joe's got it all in his trunk. So I've got to get some. I'll take some home from church. Would that be wrong? Not for the pastor. Really, it wouldn't be. Joe didn't really have all the toilet paper. Patty did, but we'll, no, I'm, I'm teasing <laughs> But you understand, the pastor can actually help himself to things in the church. Isn't that interesting? Read, read that later. Now, pastor, led of the spirits, not going to take everything from the church home. You know? If there's a situation where I need something, I would. But we take care of the pastor. We understand that. That's what it says. Let's change the subject here for a moment. Verse, the same verse. Let him that's taught in the word. That's a great word, the word, word. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 says, The word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. Super sharp. The word of God can divide your thoughts and your intentions. It can divide the marrow from your bones. That's how sharp it is in a spiritual manner. It's inspired. It's God-breathed. That's why I look at it and I see myself because it's supernatural. The Holy Spirit knows what's on my heart. And I can be reading, you know, I can be reading the verse in, in Leviticus about so-and-so begat so-and-so. It'll still convict me. It's, it's powerful. Sometimes I've preached a message over the years, and, and I preach maybe on, on something, a subject, and, and someone comes forward, and they say, well, I'm coming forward for this. And I'm like, where did that come from? I didn't preach on that. Well, the Holy Spirit's speaking to you, isn't he, in a unique way. I don't know your hearts, but he does, and he speaks to us. Listen to him. And listen to the word. The word living, the word of God is quick, is translated living in Hebrews 3.12. So the word of God is living, the living word. Jesus Christ was the logos, the living word. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And he's still in this book. He's not the ink, he's not the pages, but the Holy Spirit is speaking to us. The Lord who dwelleth in our hearts is speaking to us through his word. And we need to listen I think it's going to be sad when we stand before the Bema seat and we're empty-handed because we didn't do anything. We didn't bear a burden. We didn't rebuke a brother. We didn't help a cause. 
And, and I believe many of you do. When pastors preach, they tend to always talk about the ones who don't. But think of all the wonderful people that are part of this church that do those things. Amen? I'm thankful for you. I'm thankful for how you treat me and how you treat one another. But never hurt anyone. No matter how much you like them or dislike them, you pray for them. You help them. You encourage them. I was reading a story about Abraham Lincoln. I love Abraham Lincoln, of course. He attended a church in Washington, D.C. on a regular basis. And the pastor preached an eloquent sermon. And, and the assistant pastor came up and said, what did you think of the sermon? He said, I thought the sermon was carefully thought, and thought out, eloquent, eloquent. You know, I don't have eloquency. Eloquently delivered. And the man said, well, then you thought it was a great sermon? No, Lincoln said. Because I think he failed. Well, how? He failed to ask us to do something great. And as a pastor, I have to challenge your will every time I preach and say, you need to change and do this. Some of us need to learn to confront people in the spirit. People we know need confrontation. We know they're part of our family or, or, or someone who confides in us. That's our calling. And others of us need to receive that correction in the right way. Nothing was more influential in my life than I was standing out of an establishment called Coral Gables as a 19-year-old guy. It wasn't a good establishment. And my youth pastor came by, hey, Dan, and drove on. He was nice. Boy, did that rebuke me. I had to see him Sunday. I thought, what if he tells my dad? It was a bar, by the way, in case you want. What if he tells dad? I'm dead. <laughs> my dad was a deacon. But he was nice. Sunday, he acted as though nothing happened. It was just that little high Dan. Now, what if he jumped out of the car? came up to me and said, what kind of a person are you going in a place like that? You know better than that. You're a Christian. Your dad's a deacon. What is wrong with you? I don't know that I'd ever gone back to his class because he was angry. I needed the rebuke, but it was just simply, hey, Dan. Another neighbor one time saw me doing something. He said, lad, lad. Guy was from a country. They use the word lad all the time. Lad. You ought not to do that. Oh, man, was that powerful. I, I use myself too often. I got to tell you one more. I was in a gym, and I was a rabble-rouser in basketball, and I was getting into it with someone. And Jim Ellis, I believe he's with the Lord now, came up afterwards and said, Dan, you're better than that. You're better than that. Oh, man. Did I get mad at him? No. I felt like crying, crawling in a hole. That's how we have to deal with people. Sometimes I want to just shake my kids up. But that doesn't help them. Kids resent parents who do that. However, there are parents who don't discipline in any way, shape, or form, and those kids grow up without any guidelines, and they're in all kinds of trouble. So there needs to be spirit-filled confrontation and not angry confrontation, but there doesn't need to be a family or a home without any confrontation. A lady one time said to me, I just can't, can't correct my son. I just have, we're so close and he doesn't like it when I correct him. And I said, you're the parent. 
He's the child. I didn't say it like that. I said it in a nice way. But you know, that's the responsibility of a parent. It's tough duty, but we are capable of being spirit-led because greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. If you're not a Christian today, I challenge you to be saved. But if you're a Christian, that still small voice in you is saying something to you, I don't know what. But just listen to that still small voice. It may be an encouraging word. He, he doesn't always rebuke. The Spirit is our comforter, right? Our, the Spirit is our teacher, right? He rebukes us, but he also just comforts us and encourages us because he's God. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Lord, for the privilege to preach it, to speak to hearts, God, because we all need loving rebuke and we all need to loving rebuke others. And Lord, I have to be on the receiving end and the giving end. Just help me, God, to be in a good example to my family, to my neighborhood, to my church. Bless now in Jesus' name, amen. You stand and sing as Brother Harold comes. Thank you, Brother Harold.